So make your way to 1 Kings 18 as we travel through the book of 1 Kings. And remember all of uh, Elijah's trials from last week. Remember, he started with having to go to Ahab, and then he had to go to the brook, and then he had to stay there as he watched it dried up. Well, major trial tonight. So let me encourage us again in all of our trials that we lift our eyes above the trials, because if you've read ahead, you may not have figured out why, but Elijah takes his eyes off the Lord, and he stumbles. See, if I do what James would challenge us to do, count it all joy or consider it pure joy as we encounter various trials. See, that causes me, that forces me to keep my eyes on the Lord if I consider it all joy. It forces me. And of course, uh, as I do, I'm going to actually survive the trials of life, but not just survive them but grow through them and do, well, as Jesus says, greater works in our lives than he did. That's what he said. It's recorded in John chapter 4, verse 12. He's hours away from being arrested. The Passover supper has ended. This is what he says to his guys. This is what he says to you and me. Moshe, surely I say to you, he who believes in me, that's the prerequisite, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And we see that. I hope you can see that in your own life. Now, that statement that Jesus makes is either true or false. Greater works than these will you do than what I did because I go to my Father. That's either true or false. It is. It's not, well, that's good for you, not for me. No, no, no. It's either true for everybody or it's false for everybody. If it's true, then we all want to allow Jesus to work through us. But if it's false, then what in the heck are we doing here? Because see, if Jesus made one false statement his entire life, he would not be the perfect, spotless, sacrificial lamb, free of spots and blemishes. But we know he was perfect. So then we know his word is true. So that's why we want to allow the trials of life today to prepare us for our ultimate showdown in life, which would be the rapture or death. But then also it kind of seems like that's what it is for Elijah as well. And that's where we are here. It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go present yourself to Ahab. If you look back in chapter uh, 17, verse 3, that the word was go hide, but not today, it's go show. Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. We know according to James 5 that we looked at last week, we're move, moving towards the end of the three-and-a-half-year marker when Elijah first appeared to Ahab because James writes that Elijah prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. So it's three plus years, moving closer to three and a half. Notice that when Elijah told Ahab in the last chapter that as the Lord God of Israel lives, that he was going to pray and that there would be no rain. And again in this chapter, he, he tells him, hey, look, the rain is coming. All of Elijah's fervent praying 
is based not upon Elijah's relationship with God, but it's based upon God's promises to Elijah. See, praying according to God's promises to you and me, Elijah praying with God's promises to him, that's what will bring about effectual, fervent prayer team. Remember, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And he prayed earnestly for three and a half years, and it did not rain. And he did so, and this is critical for us to understand, he did so because of the foundation of God's promises to him. That's why we pray. That's why we stand there boldly and we ask of our Father. That's why Jesus says, hey, greater works than, than will you do than what I've done. Because I'm going to my Father. When you ask, I'm going to answer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rush that thing right up to the very presence of the throne of God and say, stamp this thing. It needs to happen right now. But of course, the church has to pray. And we have to pray. But the only prerequisite was you have to believe in Jesus. That's it. That's our prerequisite. I mean, you think about it. We have a whole book full of promises, team. We do. So ask away. Verse 2, the obedient life that Elijah lives. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. So he's on his way. And there was a severe famine in Samaria. Obviously, because there's been a shortage of water. And Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now, Obadiah, whose name means servant of Yahweh, and we're going to discover he is all that and more, feared the Lord greatly, for so it was while Jezebel, Ahab's crazy demon-possessed wife, massacred, it says that in your Bible, you just don't have the right version, <laughs> massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets, and hidden them 50 to a cave and had fed them with bread and water. So he's a gutsy man. You know, you're feeding them with bread and water and there's a, there's a severe famine. And, you know, it's kind of hard to, you know, hide the food that you're taking to me each week or something. And so Ahab said, had said to Obadiah, go into the land to all the springs of water and to all the brooks. Perhaps we may find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any livestock. So they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah, God's man on the inside, went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah went on his way, suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is that you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. So that's pretty straightforward. Elijah's here. He's calling. Can't you hear? <laughs> so Obadiah said, how have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into Ahab to kill me, into the hand of Ahab to kill me? I mean, what would cause a man to speak like that Unless you had a reputation. And we find out here that Elijah did have a reputation. As the Lord your God lives, there's no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he's not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go tell your master Elijah is here. 
It shall come to pass as soon as I'm gone from you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know where. Godly reputation here. So when I go and tell King Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Obadiah is positive that as soon as he leaves Elijah's presence to go tell King Ahab that he's found him, that the Spirit of the Lord is going to carry Elijah somewhere, much like those who are born again in the Spirit. And, he's, and the Spirit of God is going to take you someplace. I, I don't know, Elijah. I'm not sure I'm going to go do that. And then when we can't find you, crazy Ahab's going to kill me, his trusted servant, because you didn't stay where you were. So Obadiah is now really seeking to save his life and pleading with Elijah. And I don't know if Elijah knows this, but I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water? Don't, don't you know this? And now you say, go tell your master Elijah's here is here. He'll kill me. So it's kind of a valid reason until Elijah speaks. Then Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. So breathe easy, Obadiah. I'm not going to be carried away. God has called me to go to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. Then it happened in typical worldly, although now Christian fashion, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Really? The, the same virus that was in the world has infected the church team, where people today blame God and the Lord's people for their own issues. Spouses blame spouses for what is stored up in their hearts. Children blame their parents. Their parents blame their children. And the blame game is in full motion today in the church as well as outside in the world. I'm not sure there's a difference anymore. But it shouldn't be. Or should it? See, I think it should be that way. Because in the last days, men's going to be lovers of themselves, man. They're going to be blaming everybody but themselves. So I can kind of see how it's the same in the church as it is in the world. You know? If you're in love with yourself, you can never do anything wrong has to be somebody else. At least that's what Ahab thinks. Yet the reality is, it's the worship of the golden cows and the sky gods is why they are in the situation that they're in. And so the Lord God sending Elijah here is a total act of mercy on his part. For the last three and a half years, it hasn't rained. But that's because of Israel's problem, not Elijah's problem. But it seems like God at least has their attention now. Is that you, O troubler of Israel? That's the accusation that's been laid. And Elijah answered, truthfully, I add, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Let me remind us all that this is an unarmed man before a crazy king with a crazier wife that has a military. And that Elijah is a man with a nature just like us. God tells him to go, and he goes. The truth has been spoken, and now the challenge is to be laid out. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel. And when you're on Mount Carmel, it looks down into the Megiddo Valley. It's certainly one of the great stops along the journey. 
and gather uh, not only all of Israel, but also the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So please keep track of that. How many prophets is Elijah requesting? 850. 850. Remember that. So Ahab, because he thinks he's on the winning team, that is always what religion promises, your way of living and you are right and the Bible and all Christians are wrong. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and he drew a line in the sand and said to them, how long will you falter between two opinions? You cannot be lukewarm here. You cannot be lukewarm any longer. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. Why? It's kind of a sad commentary on their spiritual life here. Is it they don't answer because they don't know? Seems to be. Are they really that wishy-washy, that lukewarm, that they cannot give an answer? Seems that's the case. Not enough of the true God of Israel to repent, and too much of the true God of Israel to fully follow after Baal. That's where they are. And there's many in the church today like that. They are. Too much of the true God of Israel to fully enjoy the world and too much of the world to fully enjoy the God, the, the Lord God. I want you to notice there's three sets of people on this mountaintop. There's Elijah, the 850 false prophets with Ahab, and the multitude who worship them both. Kind of sounds like our country. These people were trying to worship Jehovah, God, money, and pleasure all at the same time. That's what they were doing. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. But that doesn't seem right. At least maybe that's what Elijah thinks. Or maybe he's purposely forgetting about Obadiah and the hundred prophets he hid so he doesn't blow their cover. Plus, we're going to discover that there's 7,000 others who have not bowed their knee to Baal, but maybe Elijah doesn't know that yet. Verse 23, let's call it the test. Therefore, let them, the prophets of Baal, he's, Elijah's going to stack the deck against him in everything, any way, every way possible. Let them, the prophets of, of Baal, let them go first and give us two bulls. So, I mean, they get to do it. They get to pick them out. They can... And let them choose one bull for themselves. They can pick the better one, whatever, cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. But you got let them pick them, and then they can give me one. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Man, it seems pretty logical. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourself and prepare it first. For you are many and call on the name of your God, but put no fire on it. You know, they, just get them busy. You got, it's got a lot more people than I do. You got 450, I only got one. So go build your altar, prepare your sacrifice. And, and, and they do. So they took the bull, which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning 
even till noon, saying, oh, Baal, hear us. They're very sincere and passionate about their request here. But there is no voice. Yeah, you know why? Because I was going to bring a pet rock I got when I was in Israel and set it right here. But, you know, it could just be, here it is, oh, oh optical God of the heavens. Come on, you can do it. Yeah, the only way I could do anything is if the sun hit it just right and there was a piece of paper on the other side and maybe we could start a fire. Oh, Baal, hear us, but there's no voice. No one answered. Why? I hope we all know. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. See, they're very Pentecostal-like. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating or he's busy. Obviously, he's a one-dimensional God, like my glasses here. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened as he mocks them. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out of them. So they're very sincere in their belief, but please notice that when a person moves away from God's provision, it's interesting to me that they have to provide their own blood. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Why? Same answer. There's no one home. Now, they do have dedication and passion and are very sincere in their belief, like all religious people, but what they lack that Elijah has is a God of fire that answers from heaven. So verse 30 becomes object lesson time, because that's really what this is. This is an object lesson to the max. And Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So they're all crowding in around him on top of Mount Carmel. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. You know, as we're looking at him repairing this altar, how does your altar look today? You know that sacred place where you draw near to God? You know that place where fire and passion are stirred up in your heart every time you gather there at that altar? How is that altar? Is it in need of some repair? If it is, you know, this is no better time than the present because all of us need the fire of God falling down upon our lives every day to you. We will never, we can never do it in our, in our own. God will let us go alone. God will let us do it all on our own. But you're never going to make any impact. You're never going to do greater works than what Jesus did if it's just you on your own. So if you need to repair your altar, you might want to repair it. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the 12 tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. So, you know, just random stones, uncut, no tools were to be used on it. So he lays them all out there. But don't think small. I mean, think rather large stones. And he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of seed. I tried to figure out what that was. The best I could come up with is that is that it's seven gallons or so uh, of water. Uh, you know, Elijah knows wet wood is no big deal to the Almighty God. So, But he's wanting to go way beyond what the religious people did. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. 
and said, fill four water pots with water. And, and if those are the same water pots that were at uh, the wedding in Cana, they're 30 to 40 gallons a piece, but we don't know if that's true. And, uh, and said, fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And so the water is just running in, into the earth, into the ground, filling the trough. It's soaking into the ground. Remember, it's famine, it's drought, it's dry. No doubt the water is sucking in like crazy. Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. He wants everybody to know there's no trick at play here. There's no, like, you know, gasoline in there. I doubt if they had that, but... They had some oil that would burn. Keep in mind, religion is still yelling, cutting himself. It doesn't say that they stopped. Of course, they could have, but I don't think they've gathered around to watch this, but they could be. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah, who no doubt knows his Old Testament history, knows this has been done before, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. In other words, he's saying, look, I want everyone to know that the Lord God is the one directing me. I'm not directing me. This is all God here. And team, that is so important in all we do today. We don't want to direct our own lives. We don't want to direct our own steps. We don't want to create, direct our own things in ministry? Why would we ever want to do that? When Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow me, why then all of a sudden in ministry, do we want to create our own stuff and do our own things and, and, and just ask God, I don't understand that. We don't want to fabricate something because it worked over there. We don't want to create a swell and then ask God to bless it as we have pop on our boards and watch it just <clears throat> fall to pieces. We want to be led by the Lord God. Let me tweak that a little bit. We must be led by the Lord God today. Not doing what somebody else did, but doing what God is speaking to me today. Otherwise, I'm working off a dead altar, an altar of yesterday's. We should be on a fresh altar with fresh fire. We don't want to create programs and then ask God, God, please bless our program. I don't want to do that. You know, we stopped LinkedIn because, you know, people just weren't making it. I don't have a problem stopping it. Certainly not going to put it on life support. I still have a heart for those young people. And then all of a sudden, hey, there's a whole bunch of them. So hey, let's see what happens. Yeah, and there's fresh fire in that group now. But we don't want to create a program and then put it on life support to keep it alive and keep it going. What a waste of energy and effort. Plus, I know God will work through those things, but that's not what God wants to do here. You know, as you and I deny ourselves and pick up our cross daily, as we live life in that place, following Jesus will be easy as we seek his lead and not our own. Not our own. That's what's happening here with Elijah as he cries out after following God's lead. Man, he is so in tune with what God wants him to do right now. And so he says, hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was 
in the trenches, the other altar still stands there with flies, and if it's hot out, the meat starting to turn brown. Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, and I'm going to clarify this, at least for this specific moment, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And that's what the Lord is after. That's why he brought the drought in the first place. Of course, it's going to be short-lived, but this is what God is after. He's after them, trying to give them a, a change of heart to where they could get a new starting place. And so Elijah said to them, these on fire who have just witnessed the fresh fire people, seize the prophets of Baal. Okay, take notice of that. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there, even as these false priests had executed God's men. So my big question is, are the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table in this execution scene? You would think, you would think so. We just don't read about them here yet. Because it just says, seize the prophets of Baal. Then Elijah said to Ahab, as he stands on the promises of the Lord God, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. I believe this is a total act of mercy on Elijah's part. If Ahab will listen, he's going to get a jump on the rain. You know, get going, get in your chariot. The rain is coming. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. Please notice he's not in a big hurry about the rain, seeing that there aren't any clouds as he continues to, maybe he's stuffing his face, it seems. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. Maybe he's picking up some uh, burnt sacrifice that's left behind, even though it says it got all burnt up. But Elijah goes up to the top of Mount Carmel. From the top of Mount Carmel, as you look west, you can see the Mediterranean Sea on a clear day. Clear day. You can see Mount Hermon. You can see Mount Tabor. And in an extremely clear day, every time I've went, it's always been hazy. You can look all the way across and see Nazareth. So picture this. Mount Carmel, Nazareth where Jesus grew up. So where would Jesus have played out in the fields? Out in the Valley of Megiddo. I'm sure they played guns. What boy wouldn't play guns? <laughs> maybe he didn't. Then he, maybe he played swords. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And seven times he said, Go again, servant, go again, go again. Seven times he's telling him to go back and look. You know, he's still praying. He comes back. I don't see anything. Go back. Look again. I, come, I don't see anything. So why does Elijah keep sending his servant to go looking for clouds? Well, we know he's praying according to God's word that was spoken to him that it was going to rain. And so he's not going to quit praying until God's an God answers. Just like Paul with his thorn in the flesh, he keeps praying until Jesus answers. That's critical if I'm going to pray. I keep praying until Jesus answers. I don't want to give up. Then he came to pass the seventh time that he said, hey, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Again, it's kind of an act of mercy and kindness here. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind. So the clouds are moving pretty quickly there. And there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and uh, no doubt his chariot's getting stuck every once in a while and went to Jezreel in his chariot pulled by mighty horses or one or two horsepower. 
We don't know how many horses. Maybe he's got five horsepower. It doesn't matter. But the Lord God, verse 46, Then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and anointed him for the 15-mile or so uh, travel. And he girded up his loins and ran a hand of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So, uh, you know, so however many horsepower Ahab has doesn't matter because Elijah with unlimited horsepower runs and beats him there. And so Elijah's coming off a great victory. He's watched God bring the fire. He's watched the Lord stir up the people. He's watched the people destroy 450 or 850 false prophets. He's prayed for rain. It's pounding. And lastly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he outran the horses. As the hearts of the people had turned back to God, man, life is good. He is on a roll, chapter 19. And spineless Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. See that word all? That tells me all 850 prophets were killed, even though I wasn't very clear in the last chapter. Ahab brought in the worship of Baal. Jezebel brought in the, uh, into the marriage the worship of Asherah, the sexual perverted as bad as it gets, idolatry God. He's told, he's told Jezebel, his demon-possessed wife, and she sends a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me. Oh, you mean like my glass god here? <laughs> so let the gods do to me. You mean the gods uh, whose prophets were just killed? So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as like as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So what, lady? That would be, I don't know, maybe that wouldn't be my response. Maybe she knows he's going to run. You know, she could have secretly arrested him. But then that wouldn't have done anything for her cause because all of the people would have still pointed out, yeah, you arrested him because he destroyed because God destroyed all your people. So maybe she knows she can seek to put some fear in him. I, I, I don't know. Maybe she thinks she can still fool herself and, and the people that Baal is a little God. I don't know. So Jezebel takes an oath, a 24-hour vow, your life for killing my perverted religious priest. And for some reason, this great man of God is deathly afraid because of this woman. At least it seems this way. Remember when, when Jesus put his disciples in the ship and told them to go to the other side? They're out in the sea battling the storm. And Jesus comes to them and they're deathly afraid. They think he's a ghost. And Jesus says, hey, it's not a ghost, it's I, you know. And so Peter says, we know what Peter says, well, Lord, if it's you, just bid me to come. And Jesus says, hey, come on out. And Peter's doing really well until what happens? Took his eyes off of Jesus. Obviously, that's what's happening to Elijah here. He's taking his eyes off the Lord God. And as he does that, fear settles in. And he causes them to sink. See, you can only do one. You can either have trust and faith in God or you're going to fear God, have fear. And I think that's what happens. You know, we, we get on our, our big ocean liners and we're out there uh, below deck and enjoying life. And all of a sudden we hit a bump and 
we stick our head up and Jesus says, no, no, it's okay. Just go below deck. You'll be fine. And then we hit another bump or a series of bumps. And next thing we know, we, we climb the ladder and we go up to the helm and we bust Jesus overboard. And it's like, I'm taking control of my life right now because I'm just going to. And then Jesus sits in his rowboat alongside our ocean liner saying, I can come help you. I got it. And we go life alone. Christians do this all the time. All of us can, this can happen to all of us. And so Jesus is in the rowboat, rowing his rowboat, and we're just going life. And then all of a sudden, hey, there's a storm up ahead. No, I got this. And Jesus is trying to get us to come back down and go back under the boat so he can take the lead again. And, and then it's like, hey, the boat starts breaking up. And Jesus says, hey, I can fix this. And, 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 and we can just stay our, stay our thing and just keep doing our thing. And then, and then all of a sudden it's sinking and we say, Lord, help us. And so he comes and he puts it all back together again and dries us off, puts us below deck, pats our little heads and say, look, stay below deck and trust me. And life is good. And then all of a sudden we hit a bump or a series of bumps. But you know what? The reason people go through those cycles is because they don't stay below deck. You got to stay below deck. And you got to enjoy it. Because if you don't stay below deck and enjoy it, then you're never learning in the process and God's going to hit the reset button on you. You got to learn it. It's critical. Elijah got his eyes off the Lord and strong men of God are not immune from the valleys of despair. And it's for him, it's going to go from bad to worse. Man, he's, he's going to be ready to die here before he gets done. But then we know that how the devil is. And when he saw that, or maybe better yet, heard that, Elijah at the high point of his life, coming down from his mountaintop experience, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, he's up north, like way up north. Beersheba's in the edge of the wilderness, the extreme southern city. So he had to escape down through all of the northern tribes, down past Judah, I mean, he's booking it. Beersheba's the edge of the wilderness, the extreme southern city. I mean, he's he, he books it 80 to 90 miles from Jezebel. But that's not far enough. Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Now he's away from all people and all civilizations. Because some woman said, hey, God, do, you know, you're going to be dead in 24 hours. Yeah, whatever. Why don't you come on down here? Let's see what happens right now. <laughs> so he came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. That's how the devil is. If you open a door and you don't punish those things, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, it says, we need to punish those carnal thoughts. If you don't, man, they can get in there and they can mess with your head. And he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. After being threatened by Jezebel, that's, we're going to keep it in context here. This man with a nature like ours that had been praying for the last three and a half years that it would not rain, then prayed that it would rain. And now he prays, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father. So that's true. We're all sinners. Nobody is ever going to get past that. When you're sick or tired or in pain and physically wiped out, so much so that you're all used up 
emotionally. That's kind of when the devil wants to come attack spiritually. After waiting 40 days, that's when he attacked and tempted Jesus, when Jesus was most vulnerable. No doubt they watch, they study, and when they get things the best way they can, then they strike. And if we don't have our armor on, if somehow we're trusting ourselves and not trusting the Lord, oh, we're going to go down. And we're going to continue to go down and struggle down until we get back into that place of trusting the Lord. And that's what's happening here. I mean, look at his last words that he says here. For I'm no better than my father's. Was he maybe might have thinking he was? I, I don't know from that statement. Maybe he's just saying something that he, that he already knows. I don't know. It's interesting. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. This could possibly be Jesus here. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water, so he ate and drank and lay down again. That kind of sounds familiar, at least something that maybe uh, Jesus might have done with Peter after the all-night fishing trip and the boys. And the angel of the Lord came back. See, that's why I think it might be Jesus, because whenever we see the angel of the Lord show up, it's usually an Old Testament picture of Jesus. He came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. And that's so true of all life, team. We all need divine help for the journey in order to make it. No one's going to make it on their own. So he ate again, divine provision number two. So he rose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights, some 200 plus miles, give or take a few, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And if we just let the word speak for himself, Elijah was supercharged from that food that the angel of the Lord provided for him. But here's what we need to understand. It didn't have to take him 40 days of travel. He could have did the trip in a little under three weeks. Or he could have did the trip in about half the time that it should have taken him. So why 40? I don't know. It took the Israelites 40, days to get the 40 years to get it together. So I don't, I don't know if that's what's going on here. I don't know if he's purposely taken the 40 days. I have no idea. The place where he's at, though, now in Horeb is the place where Moses met with God, first at the burning bush, and then uh, after Moses led Israel out of Egypt, Moses met with him again. This is where Moses struck the rock and water came out the first time. It's also where he meets with God up on the mountain. And now Elijah's here. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, what's so awesome about verse 9? He travels for 40 days and nights on the supercharged food. It appears he doesn't stop and get anything else to eat. When he gets to Horeb, he finds a cave and goes in for probably a long sleep session. But as the sun is rising, the word of the Lord woke him up. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What does that teach us? See, I could say, what are you all doing here? But I cannot say, what are you all doing over there at my house? Why? No, because I'm not there. See, I can say, what are you all doing here? 
because you're here at my house. But I can't say, what are you doing over there at my house? Because I'm not there. I'm here. So as the Lord says here, what are you doing here, Elijah? It tells us the Lord was already there. Some believe this is the exact same spot where God appeared to Moses in, in this whole, uh, when Moses wanted to see God thing. I have no idea. That's People are totally guessing when they write that stuff. Because nobody knows. You know, it's not like uh, the Jews have went up and put a sign on Mount Horeb. This is where God met with Moses. And even though a lot of those signs are, especially the Catholics put them up, are probably not true. But the Lord was already in the cave waiting for Elijah to minister to him. So here's Elijah running to save his life, and the Lord's already steps ahead of him. What are you doing here, Elijah, is the question, as he gives his answer. So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Wow, that's kind of a bad rerun from verse 10, by the way. Elijah is in need of time with the Lord. Look at his statements here. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. True or false? True. It's true. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. <coughs> true or false? It's true. I alone and left, and they seek to take my life. True or false? It's false on two accounts. There's 100 hidden prophets, and for those of you who have read ahead, there's 7,000 more. But even if this was all true, the Lord God plus you is always a supermajority. It's, it's just that way. And unless you're going home, he's taking you home. So whether it be machine guns or grenades or other crazy things where we travel, whatever, bring it on. Because I'm certainly not going to go run and hide. Oh, yeah, how'd you die? Um, well, uh, I went and hid, and a stray bullet hit me rather than staying behind the pulpit teaching. I, that ain't happening to me. God plus you is the supermajority. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter. Plus, if you look at his answers here and evaluate them, don't they seem like answers as to why he should have stayed alive? And he should have served the Lord? Seems like it. Then the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. See, God knows he needs a personal encounter with the living God. And if God knows that for him, he knows that for us. That's why he has assembled and left us today what we call a holy Bible that we can engage God with and spend time with God all the time. I mean, here's a man that's running for his life. And God says, I know what you, you need, a personal encounter with the living God. Something each one of us need every day in God's word. And behold, the Lord passed by, but, and, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, this is what Elijah needs, a small still voice. And that's what the Lord must teach Elijah here. See, this is what he needs for this season in his life. 
he could have got that back when he was running down south, going through uh, the northern tribes of Israel past Judah. He could have stopped, checked in, got a quiet room out, got a quiet time with the Lord. But this is what Elijah needs to teach, or this is what the Lord needs to teach Elijah. That he can find those quiet places of life and he can reconnect with God. He, he doesn't need Mount Carmel moments when all the prophets are killed in one setting. And the Lord God is going to teach him that. You don't need those. Wow, those big moments. Those are the things that, hey, and we can have them. They're fair. The Lord will teach us in those big things. But he's ever present in every day of our life to also teach us in all the small things. The same lesson as in the big lessons. Now with that all being said, sometime Jesus is in the wind. He was in the day of Pentecost. Sometimes Jesus is in the earthquake. Paul and Silas in jail in Philippi. Sometimes Jesus is in the fire. Shad, Reshach, Shad, Meshach, and Abednego in the tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost. But today the lesson... It's the small voice. It's the small, still voice. I don't know. Maybe it's that inner voice. The world calls us conscience. We call it the Holy Spirit, the voice of God, that voice that speaks if we will but listen and obey. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of, a, of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone have left and will seek to take my life, as he seeks to inform the Lord God, but not answer his question. If he was the last man standing, would the Lord God be able to protect him from Jezebel 24-7 until he took him up? Of course he would. So rather than say he messed up, he digs deeper. Look at what the small still voice says to Elijah. What are you doing here? Notice again, Elijah does not answer the Lord's question. His question is plenty good in all of our lives. I think the Lord might speak to this to us more often than we might think. We're just too busy doing our thing to listen. What are you doing here? I mean, to me, at least this is what the Lord spoke to me today. This question from our Lord is probably the most critical of all questions in all of our lives. When we find ourselves in places maybe we shouldn't be in or just like we've lost our way, this is a great question. What are you doing here? I don't know, I'm just kind of doing my own thing, you know, uh, you know, living on the world and doing the world. I don't know, whatever we would answer. But this is a great question. What are you doing here? It's like, Lord, I want you to ask me that question all the time in my life. What are you doing here? Just slap me alongside the head. I have no idea. And I want to repent and get back there. Because that's what it's... That's what God's after. What, what are you doing? Let's, let's get past all those excuses and let's... Critical question. You know, my heart is, may we always hear what Elijah hears here. Bruce, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Jacob, what are you doing here? Jacob. And not ask anything or give reasons and make excuses. 
when we hear that, but quickly and seriously repent and go the other way. I, I don't Well, Lord, let me tell you why I'm here. You know, I thought, well, that's always going to get anybody in trouble. This is what Elijah needs to, to do here. Then the Lord said to him, not no dwelling in the past or failures of the past as he seeks to get his man refocused with the task. Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meloah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So not only a task, but please notice also a young man and disciple. Critical. I love the picture. Jesus said, go out and make disciples. They keep you busy, keep you on the right track. Hey, here it is right here. The making of disciples. That's what LinkedIn is. It's the making of disciples. We all going to have those places where we're out making disciples. Jesus has called us to it. They're all around us. Like I said on Sunday, I was sitting at a soccer game. I was minding my own business and look, making the disciples. We're there. We just have to be able to stop our thing and look and see what God is doing. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill, as God shows Elijah justice on the false leaders. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have now bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, what would that do for Elijah as we take a momentary pause? And don't tell me he would realize he's not alone. Even though that's true. So what's that going to do for Elijah? Yes, it's a faithful remnant, I think God's seeking to encourage his man that over his ministry, hey, look, there's 7,000 faithful. Think of Jeremiah's ministry. There was zero. But here there are in this man's ministry over the years, he was fruitful with 7,000 who have not bowed to Baal. He needs to get back in the game and get going. So he departed into there from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, just like this still small voice had told him. And Elisha was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12. I might teach this on a Sunday morning. This is like a stumbling block. Make people leave the church lesson here, I think. Or at least cause them to repent. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. So, so as Elijah goes by him, he throws his mantle on him, marking him as a prophet or a prophet to be like himself. Elisha probably came from a very wealthy family. Usually a family only had one, maybe at the two, at the most two oxen. Here Elisha has 12. And he's out plowing with his father's servants. New Testament theology picture right here. We'll find the New Testament theology. Jesus speaks it. This is the picture right here. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah you know, Elijah walks by, throws a mantle on, just, keep, just keeps on walking. 
And so he runs after him and catches them and says, please let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. Wow. Doesn't seem like a big deal, does it? But to God, when God calls us, he calls us out of our family and calls it into his family. So Elijah, fresh from making excuses from the Lord, is repenting. He's right on track with God here. When he says, and he said, go back again. For what have I to do with you? For what have I done to you? See, if family is going to be before the Lord or before your calling for your life, just go back and go do plowing. Just go for it. Verse 21. So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them, boiled the flesh using the oxen's equipment, gave it to the people, and they ate. So Elisha gets it here. He also kicks it into gear and demonstrates to Elijah that he is all in as he slaughters some of the family business and destruction of some of the family property that bound him there. He's 100% in. They're going to eat, and he's going to leave. And then he arose and followed Elijah and became a servant. And he's going to be the one that will take the ministry forward when Elijah disappears in a few uh, chapters in a whirlwind. But Elijah's words here are very closely related to those of Jesus in Luke chapter 9. The man said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Not give them a kiss. Let me just go back and say, hey, I'm going to go follow Jesus. Bye. But Jesus said to him, no man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. God's word, not mine. This is the picture, though, right here. Mantle. Ah, let me go back and kiss him. Not, not interested. We're not, not into that. I mean, we see this demonstrated in Jesus' life on multiple accounts when his mothers and brothers show up seeking to take him home because they think he's lost his mind. And so there's Jesus teaching in the house and the people, uh, his family shows up and they stop the people from listening to the Messiah as they're trying to barge in. They can't get in. So then it's like, hey, can you, uh, as they interrupt more people, hey, can you uh, tell uh, Jesus his mother and his brothers are outside? And so word comes from the outside that his mother and brothers are out there. And so now they stop Jesus from preaching to the multitudes. And we all know the answer. Jesus answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my family. And that's what Elijah's doing here in this word picture of New Testament theology. Because that's what the Old Testament is all about. It's all about pictures and stories. And then you bring the New Testament theology and you put into the picture. So you can see exactly how it plays out. See, the nature of God is the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. We're not dealing with two different gods, one from the old and one from the new. Oh, no, no, we're dealing with one. And we see the picture. And this is a huge problem in the church today. Where, where is your family? Oh, it's here. I don't even have to think about it. But can you say the same? Where's your family? Oh, it's here. That's, what's, that's what the picture is. 
Of course, it's the bigger body of Christ, but still, it's that's that's the family. It's a challenge. It might be a challenge to you. I'm sure it's a challenge to some. You know, where people might go, God's first, their family's unsaved, family second, you know, their salvation's third, or whatever. I know, I know, I've seen people operate that way. You know, God's first, their unsaved family's second, their ministry calling is fourth, their job's third. No, that's all jacked up. It can't be that way. God's got to be first. And then God gets to be first. <laughs> Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Family can easily become a god that people worship without even recognizing it. It's a picture. We're all going to deal with it. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and all that you want to do in our lives. And Lord, we don't want to be bound up. We want to throw away, we want to throw off every weight and sin that so easily, skillfully surrounds us because we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses who did incredible, amazing things. And we want to throw off those weights, whatever those weights are. And we want to present our body as a living sacrifice to you, wholly acceptable unto God. And Lord, we want to run that race with great perseverance, looking into Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, Lord, as we truly seek you first in your kingdom and your righteousness, Lord, knowing that as we walk with you, Lord, you're going to lead us. You're going you're to do greater things in us and through us than what Jesus